A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. generally an optimistic person but i do see economic storm clouds on the horizon now if not a fully blown winter of discontent Four. to adapt oscar wilde it's the hate that dare not speak its name it's not the love that dare not speak its name Three. so there's a fundamental bigotry of low expectations at play when it comes to progressive liberal politicians refusing to discuss the islamist terror threat the poor man's Joanna Lumley Halligan. You're the thinking man's Rennie Zellweger. (laughs) One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Last Sunday, Remembrance Sunday, a failed asylum seeker launched a suicide bomb attack outside a women's maternity hospital in Liverpool intending to kill and maim mothers and babies. Our politicians have spent their time since that introspectively squabbling about rules for their second jobs. Increasing numbers of voters, though, are now asking an awkward question. Awkward, but entirely understandable. Why is it that a Syrian-Iraqi man sectioned under the Mental Health Act and caught carrying a huge knife was allowed to stay in Britain, free to roam at will? This bomber killed only himself. But it was only luck and incompetence, his device didn't fully detonate, that prevented widespread loss of life among the innocent women and infants so cynically targeted last Sunday of all Sundays. The mainstream media caravan, though, seems keen to move on in this case co-pilot, as so many others. But this latest attack is resonating among the public. One reason is that it coincides with an astonishing spike in the number of illegal migrants, often from the Middle East, crossing the channel in small inflatable boats. In 2018, fewer than 300 unlawfully crossed the channel, rising to almost 2,000 in 2019 and over 8,000 in 2020. This year, though, the numbers have bloomed, with crossings now happening deep into the winter months. And already in 2021... Around 20,000 illegal migrants have crossed the channel, already well over twice the 2020 total. Interest in, even alarm at this phenomenon, in light of ongoing security threats, can no longer be dismissed as niche or distasteful. The migrant crisis is now mainstream politics, looming large as it now does in the minds of mainstream voters. Back in September, Alison, you and I warned the UK may face a winter of discontent. And now, as the cost of living spirals and politics gets increasingly bad-tempered at Westminster and beyond, our warning, and it gives me no pleasure to point this out, but our warning seems to be coming true. To be fair to economist Halligan, I think that was your mystic meggery, wasn't it, saying that we were going to be in for a winter of discontent. Yes, it's all kicking off, isn't it? Inflation hits highest level for a decade, energy prices soaring. I'm hearing from lots of friends, Liam, who are sort of ringing up to check that their gas bill isn't an entire fiction. So it's already starting to bite. And I read that consumers have been told to brace for bills soaring by 475 pounds. But before we get on to inflation, just want to sort of focus on this appalling attack, which, as you say, thank God it went wrong in Liverpool, or we would have seen potentially scores of new mothers and babies murdered. The terror threat level, remember, Liam, it's almost exactly a month since Sir David Amos was a victim of a, a fatal stabbing. Indeed. So that's two apparent hate terror attacks in a single month, the terror threat level has been raised to severe, but I'm sure it would be a great consolation to Planet Normal listeners to know that this suicide bomber in Liverpool 
had benefited from British taxpayers' money to such an extent that he was able to go on a cake decorating course. So I suppose we're lucky he didn't appear on the Great British Bake Off, aren't we, really? Look, you know I like to see a shaft of humour co-pilot in any story if I can, but this has got me absolutely furious, really. I mean, this guy, Imad al-Swailman, turns up in the UK like, you know, Thousands of these migrants are coming ashore, aren't they, in Kent, as you said. He has his asylum application turned down in 2014. Conveniently, he converts to Christianity, Liam, because apparently, little is it known, but it was a telegraph splash on Wednesday, that becoming a Christian is a way of ameliorating your situation as an asylum seeker. It's playing the game. If you convert to Christianity, you're seen as looking like you're more assimilated in British society. And guess what? You are much less likely to be turfed out of the UK because you can claim that the intolerant country you came from might execute you for, this is a word I can't say, apostasy. And I was looking back, Liam, at some of the recent um, or, you know, in the last five, ten years, appalling attacks by Islamist extremists. We saw little girls and their parents murdered at the Ariane Grande concert by Salman Abedi, the son of asylum seekers who were rescued off the Libyan coast by the Royal Navy. No less, we had the atrocious murder of three gay men having a picnic in a park in Reading by an asylum seeker. And that Reading jihadist, Liam, avoided deportation from the UK five times using £107,000 in legal aid to do so. And guess what, co-pilot? The Reading jihadist was a Christian convert. So these people are making a mockery of our borders. We've had Pretty Patel calling it the asylum merry-go-round, exploited by a whole professional legal services industry. But I think we should point out to Priti Patel that she is the Home Secretary and she has been so for two years. We've had a Conservative government for 11 years and we are still in this dreadful situation with a broken asylum system, which makes a mockery of our country's generosity, long proud history of generosity to genuine refugees. But also, as we can see now, Liam, increasingly puts the British public in the way of great harm. I think there's a analogy to be drawn, Alison, and maybe historians will draw it, between the debate over our membership over the European Union and the debate over the inflatable boats crossing the channel full to the brim and beyond with illegal migrants to this country, because that's what they overwhelmingly are, illegal migrants. Not so many years ago, it was seen by polite society as to be beyond the pale that you might want to leave the European Union And yet there was a big body of opinion out there, which the political media class was largely ignoring, saying we really don't like being pushed around by the European Union. We really don't like the fact that our fishing communities have been decimated. We really don't like the fact, as people who own and run small businesses, that we can't lobby our own MPs about business regulation because the regulation comes from Brussels and it's set by the big businesses who have massive departments to cope with regulation and it means the smaller guys can't compete and I think it's similar with this for many years it's been seen as beyond the pale to even notice let alone complain about the fact that lots and lots of people are illegally getting into small boats and crossing the channel and then entering an asylum system which is obviously completely chaotic and many 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 illegal asylum seekers go through endless legal rigmarole at the taxpayer's expense, as you said, and then end up remaining in the country anyway. Look, just like I love Europe and many people that voted to leave the European Union love Europe, I also love immigration. I am the product of immigration. As you know, I think immigrants have brought a huge amount to society and they will continue to do so. I think Britain's entrepreneurial and creative genius That spark that we have is certainly in the 19th and 20th century and into our century now, the 21st century, at least in part a product of immigration. But talk to many, many, many people who are recent legal immigrants or from immigrant stock like myself. And this kind of illegal immigration, which gives immigration a bad name, 
is absolutely terrible. And I feel sorry for lots of good, upstanding, dynamic, entrepreneurial, law-abiding, proud-to-be-British Muslim people in the aftermath of attacks like this because they are worried, understandably, about getting tarred with the same brush. But for their sake and for the sake of all immigrants and for the sake of all law-abiding people, really, we have to have this discussion about the fact that 20,000 people have arrived in this country, often with no papers and in an illegal situation. That cannot be right. That isn't heartless to point it out. It isn't heartless to point out that, yes, the UK has an honourable track record of taking in genuine asylum seekers, and that must continue, but we can't have this ongoing situation. The government simply has to get hold of this, and Labour complain loudly, and yet Labour votes against absolutely every single measure the government puts up in order to tackle this madness and calls it heartless. So I think that out there, just as with Brexit, there is a growing movement of people who hold completely reasonable, decent, logical, rational, sane views on this issue. You cannot turn a blind eye when illegal immigration is in plain sight and growing massively from less than 200 to over 25,000, that's the projection for this year, in just three years, that's the rate of growth. We have to talk about this. We have to take steps and measures. We should be humane. That is the British way. But we also cannot have a situation where tens of thousands of people are entering the UK illegally and then, to all intents and purposes, remaining in the UK. Well, you say, Liam, we have to have the discussion. But what we've seen this week is deflection and denial. The same thing happens after each of these incidents. What happened this week, of course, was we had the lovely story, inadvertently, the plucky Scouse cabbie David Perry, who was able to jump out of his taxi, you know, leaving this appalling attacker to to blow himself up in the cab. And you'll notice, Liam, that when it emerged that Al Swaleman was a Christian convert, the media and the political class were, of course, absolutely delighted because they do not want to confront attacks which are the result of violent Islamist extremism because the fear of being called Islamophobic seems to be greater than the fear that innocent members of the British public will be blown up. And I, and, you know, and I, and I say that with real anger now because... After the Sir David Amos was killed, terribly shocking, we saw how keen MPs were to discuss the evil of anonymous abuse on social media, but they studiously avoided the evil revealed by MI5, our own security service, which says it has thwarted 31 late-stage terror attacks in the last four years. That's 31 massacres narrowly avoided. But they don't want to talk about it, Liam, because they are hamstrung by political correctness. So there is absolute nervousness about addressing the issue. It's, you know, to adapt Oscar Wilde, it's the hate that dare not speak its name. It's not the love that dare not speak its name. It's the hate that dare not speak its name. And my guess, Liam, would be that members of the security services, if you could get them to talk, would be tearing their hair out that this stuff is allowed to go on. What an opportunity we've had over recent days to really get into the nitty gritty of this subject. And yet the political class and much of the media class has completely blown it. Since Remembrance Sunday, how many hours have we spent discussing MPs squabbling about their second jobs? Again, why aren't we talking about this? And yeah, that's not to be craven about it. It's not to want to spread division. On the contrary, it's to get hold of a problem that many, many, many British Muslims are deeply concerned about. And I would personally... Just as an Irish person during the 70s and 80s, when there was bombing attacks, people in the Irish community spoke out. I was there in church when Irish priests in Irish accents in London boroughs were speaking out against the use of terror 
to get some kind of political leverage. And I'd like to see some of the imams and other Muslim community leaders, many of whom do huge amount of good work in our communities more broadly. I'm not dissing them in any way, but some of them have to become braver and more willing to call out bad behavior and criticism. And it's only really from within the Muslim community itself that our security services can really get a handle here on what's happening. It strikes me that this is a particularly difficult case because the individual concerned, the perpetrator on Remembrance Sunday, was taken in by the Christian church, was given housing and and food and love by a Christian family, almost adopted, it seems, a huge amount of warmness and openness and tolerance was shown towards him despite his illegal status. That speaks so well of the UK. I'm proud of the UK for that love and welcome that was extended to him. But on the other hand, Alison, on the other side of the coin, this complete reluctance to discuss this, and we will get hammered by lots of people on social media for just having this discussion that we're having now. Our reluctance to discuss this, our determination to sweep it under the carpet yet again, I'm afraid that is the bad side of the British character, just as the warmth that was shown to this man is the good side. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Liam. Anyway, just a funny thing which you like. So um, David Perry, the Liverpool taxi driver who CCTV footage, Liam, you saw it, didn't you? Him coming out of the, there was a sort of a partial explosion in his cab from the bomber on the back seat and David emerged in a sort of cloud of smoke, absolutely dazed. And his lovely wife said that what had really wounded him was that the media had called him 56 when he was only 45. So I thought, (laughs) I thought thought, he's obviously making a good recovery if he can object to the ages being called. That irrepressible scouse sense of humour coming through. But Boris has made a mess of this, Alison, I think in part because he's massively distracted and he's massively distracted, isn't he? Massively. Because of chaos within his own court, Yeah. because of the U-turn he did on this so-called sleaze scandal. Almost everything we've seen since the resignation of Owen Paterson and indeed the resignation of Owen Paterson itself as an MP has been caused by Number 10's mishandling of what was initially a rather minor Westminster-centric crisis. It's become like a complete nervous breakdown among our body politic at a time when the public is screaming at them to be focusing on other things. Inflation's above 4%. The cost of living is spiralling. People's utility bills are heading above £2,000 on average with more to come in the spring. And then we have this terror attack and politicians are gazing at their navels. Yes, Chris Bryant, he's the Labour chair of the Standards Committee, Liam. He said the Downing Street was flapping about like a demented chicken. And Boris had a a meeting at Downing Street, obviously a sort of drinks party thrown to try and soothe all these battered feelings. And he had said he apologised for driving the golf ball into the sandpit. Well, that's one way of putting it. This, as you said, it's blown up, hasn't it? Because what should have been sort of neatly dealt with, the Owen Patterson thing, has just absolutely backfired spectacularly. And, you know, he's handed Labour, even the totally inept Labour front bench can't really go wrong with these sleaze allegations. And we had Keir Starmer trying to, you know, outlaw the sort of MPs who have two jobs. Boris tried to get in at the front of this, to head this off by claiming this was his own initiative. But I mean, you know, where's it all going to end? Because are we going to have now conservative backbenchers massively fed up that they're not allowed to take on extra work? I mean, one of the problems, Liam, I think, is that a lot of Labour MPs come from the public sector, where an MP's wage, which I think it's around 82 grand, doesn't it? 82 grand a year. That's quite a good whack for someone who's come from being in social work. But if you are, you know, quite a high flying lawyer or a surgeon, as some MPs are, it's a real dive in income. So what do we do? Do we do we pay MPs more? That would stick in the craw of members of the public who barely think they should be paid at all. What do you think, Halligan? What's the solution? I think the solution is that it's all about the amount of time you spend 
on your second job. And if your second job has nothing to do with Parliament and you don't have it because you're in Parliament, then as long as being an MP is your main job and takes the bulk of your time, even the vast bulk of your time, then that's fine. You know, I don't worry if an MP is a doctor and they spend some time doing some shifts in A&E. I don't worry if an MP is a lawyer, a QC, and they keep their practice going, albeit as long as they don't overdo it and they don't do too many hours. What I do object to is when MPs get consultancies based only on the fact that they are an MP. While they're an MP, giving businesses a paid advantage on how to play the parliamentary system, maybe tabling an amendment or something. I mean, that's just straight outright wrong. I don't think we want a bunch of political automatons in government. We've got far too many people in the House of Commons itself who've never done anything else apart from politics, you know, from a PPE degree to a special advisor post, maybe via a think tank, and suddenly they're making the law and they know nothing. They've never made payroll. They've never employed anybody. They've never had to get up in the morning and save a business or someone else's business. No real massive grown-up decisions. And we've got far too many people like that in government. I don't want to distract from politics as a career, and I don't want to discourage good people from entering politics. So a bit of work on the side, as long as it's not because you're in Parliament, but as well as being in Parliament, I think is a good thing. But the trouble is, Boris Johnson has queered the pitch so much here by trying to change the rules and then U-turning. He'll deny it, but that's effectively what's happened, that he's kind of ruined it for everybody. We will end up with a professional, you know, hand-picked, trained-from-childhood political class if we go down this rule of sort of absolute abstemiousness on second jobs. And I think that's almost as bad, if not worse even, than MPs, you know, being paid to lobby while they're MPs. Just quickly to pick the capacious brain of the Irish immigrant, is the Bank of England going to raise interest rates? Because I was looking at this and the wages, I mean, with all these, you know, tax increases are coming up in the spring, aren't they? Energy prices are soaring. Wages are going to need to go up just to not see a decrease in living standards. Do you think that the bank will raise interest rates, Liam? Alison, when inflation hits 4.2%, as it just has, the figures for October just coming out as we're recording, and the Bank of England's target is 2%, so the actual inflation outcome is more than double the target. And with more to come, with the Bank of England itself now acknowledging inflation could hit 5% early next year, then the optics of keeping interest rates where they are are very, very bad indeed. The Bank of England did take a hit to its credibility by not raising rates earlier this month when financial markets thought they would, not least because the Governor Andrew Bailey and other members of the Monetary Policy Committee, the Nine Strong Committee of Economists, had been dropping big hits that rates were about to rise. But look, this is a really important issue. I've been nerding on about inflation for many, many months. <laughs> but this is a story that's now getting way beyond the business sections mm. and it's coming into the main sections of the newspapers. It's coming onto the mainstream news bulletins. It's no longer about you know inflation expectations and who's on the Monetary Policy Committee. It's now becoming a fully blown cost of living crisis. And we don't know much that's certain in economics, but what we do know is if you don't raise interest rates in time, then you have to raise them much, much more in the future in order to get inflation under control. Inflation in the US is now over 6%. Supply chain inflation, even here in the UK, input price inflation is in double digits. This now cannot be ignored. The Bank of England was wrong to call this inflation transitory. It needs to admit it was wrong. And the only scenario I can see under which the bank won't raise rates next month, December before Christmas, is this. There is a logic to be said that before it raises rates, it has to stop this quantitative easing money printing. Oh, I know that. That's the Norabati knicker elastic, isn't it? That's the Norabati knicker elastic. <laughs> Economics by articles of underwear. <laughs> There's got to be a podcast in that co Sorry, I, Sorry, I don't, want, I don't want to interrupt. So what could actually happen next month when the Monetary Policy Committee meets, and it will be just before the middle of December, just before Christmas, is they may say, we're not going to inter raise interest rates now. We're going to wait until the new year. But we are now definitively going to end quantitative easing which they voted not to end at their last meeting, just as they voted uh, not to raise 
interest rates. So they could do it in two steps. They could say in the middle of December, okay, interest rates are going up, but not now, but we are ending quantitative easing to signal that the next step is an interest rate rise. But the idea in December that they do nothing, just more words, without any actual action on either interest rates or quantitative easing is now, to my mind, unthinkable. So I'm generally an optimistic person, as you know, but I do see economic storm clouds on the horizon now, if not a fully blown winter of discontent. It begins with a miracle treatment. These treatments were seen as a wonder drug to benefit all of us. Young lives injected with hope. This is going to transform your life. But the treatment's tainted. It contains a fatal poison. I came down with an illness where I basically passed out at work. And it starts to infect the very people it's meant to help. And then the damage began. Damage so far-reaching, it becomes one of the biggest medical disasters in history. Certainly hard to believe they sold all this product knowing it was infected. Join me as I trace it from the veins of innocent people back to a notorious American prison in The Telegraph's latest podcast. It's Bed of Lies Series 2 with me, Cara McGugan. A true story of greed, betrayal and deception. And it ends with a death sentence. In essence, they put money over life. Search Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. Liam, after two murderous attacks in the past months, I, I thought we should talk to someone who is deeply knowledgeable about terrorism and national security. Dr. Rakib Essan is a research fellow for the Henry Jackson Society's Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism and the Centre on Social and Political Risk. Born into an Indian and Bangladeshi origin family in Luton, Rakib studied politics and international relations at Royal Holloway University of London, going on to do a PhD, which investigated the impact of social integration on the public attitudes of British non-white ethnic minorities. Dr. Essen has written a number of reports on social cohesion and national security, including Muslim anti-Semitism in contemporary Great Britain and weaponizing COVID-19, far-right anti-Semitism in the United Kingdom and United States. Recently, he edited Black Lives Matter UK, an anthology which included contributors who were critical of BLM's impact on UK race relations. Rakib is currently a columnist at Spite and a terrific regular contributor to the Daily Telegraph. He also writes for The Mail, The Independent, The Scotsman, The Jewish Chronicle, Unheard, and is a frequent contributor to Sky News and Talk Radio. I began by asking Dr. Rakib Essen about the story that migrants were converting to Christianity specifically to game the asylum system. Well, I, I think, Alison, we've had senior Church of England clerics warn that this is taking place where they've uh, mm. seriously questioned how uh, heartfelt these religious conversions are. So, but ultimately, it's down to the public authorities, uh, including those who are very closely associated with maintaining or rather strengthening our asylum system, to take notice of those warnings. Some of those warnings were delivered five, six years ago, if not further than that. So I think that the Church of England, senior clerics within the Church of England, the Anglican Church, they've raised the possibility that Muslim asylum seekers are converting to Christianity, not because this is a meaningful religious conversion for them, but rather they see it as a way of blocking or rather avoiding deportation from the UK. Maybe I'm the naive one. I was pretty shocked to hear about that. So MI5 says it's sorted 31 late stage terror attacks in the last four years. So the mass murder of little girls and their parents at an Ariana Grande concert by Salman Abedi, the murder of two Cambridge University graduates at Fishmongers Hall by Usman Khan. It seems that those abhorrent attacks are just the tip of an iceberg. How bad, Rakib, is the threat from Islamist terror in the UK right now? Well, I think that the Islamist terror threat is significant. 
within the UK, Alison, just to get a bit of a measure on it. So the broader MI5 terror-related watch list in recent times, it's hit the 43,000 mark. Wow. Within that pool of 43,000 individuals, nine in 10 are categorized as Islamist extremists, which is quite remarkable. So I would say that the Islamist terror threat in the UK is significant. We have very serious issues when it comes to social segregation, especially in inner city areas. Traditionally, we've adopted a laissez-faire approach when it comes to multiculturalism. The main problem is that we have a broken asylum system. I do feel that our asylum system now is being exploited by individuals who aren't particularly appreciative of the liberal democratic freedoms they're afforded in the UK, but rather they would uh, rather exploit those freedoms. And I think that combination of having traditionally hyper-liberal immigration system combined with failed integration outcomes, that's very much fed the beast of Islamist extremism in the UK. Are you saying it's quite convenient to these malefactors, you know, these 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 bad guys. I mean, has our approach been, you know, a bit of a boon to them, to be honest? Well, I think we have a we have a broader infrastructure where, for for example, we have human rights legislation, which I feel has been used in a way where we have the situation where the rights of those who have broken laws in our country. People have no respect for the rule of law. Their rights are prioritised over the law-abiding majority that simply wants to live in peace and harmony. Mm. And I think on top of that, you you have a you have a legal sector. You have professionals who specialise in defending those individuals. Now, of course, they have a right to that defence, but it's it's become a it's become a profitable industry in that sense. And I think I think that when you look at the figures for the the, the, the amount of legal aid provided uh, for convicted terrorists, I do believe that considerable portion of the British public feels that the legal system doesn't really operate in the interests of the law-abiding majority living in this country. Yes, and whenever there's a, an attack like the one we saw this week, you get officials saying the same thing. The public must remain vigilant. We will never give in to those who seek to divide us. The media then announces invariably that the killer had mental health problems. We then get a counter-terrorism person saying, oh, there's also a terror threat from the far right. There does appear, Rakib, to be this huge reluctance to discuss an attack's potential association with violent Islamists extremism. What, why is that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a number of reasons behind that, Alison. I think when, when we look at the killing of Sir David Amos, yes. there was a real reluctance to discuss the potential links with Islamist extremism. We were fed this nonsense about Britain's confrontational political culture, which largely stems from our historically two-party system. That's been the case for decades. I, I do feel that there's a reluctance to discuss it because people are fearful of being subjected to the violence itself. I also think there's a bigotry of low expectations. I think there's a dangerous conflation between robustly discussing the threat of Islamist extremism and anti-Muslim prejudice. It's not a form of anti-Muslim prejudice to discuss the prevailing terror threat in this country, which is Islamist extremism. And interestingly, Alison, surveys show that the comfortable majority of British Muslims are worried uh, over the, that they're worried about the impact of Islamist extremism. Quite often, it's those moderate patriotic elements within British Muslim communities which have to live uh, with Islamist extremism on a day-to-day basis within their own communities. So there's a fundamental mm. bigotry of low expectations at play yeah. when it comes to progressive liberal politicians refusing to discuss the Islamist terror threat. I think that's really interesting, Rakib. I mean, th- that's very much what strikes me, is there seems to be an official terror of stoking anti-Muslim feeling, yet by not openly discussing what's going on and the threat... 
that then there are knock-on consequences for social cohesion with many non-Muslim people thinking, well, you know, we never hear from these people how bad it is. We So we don't hear enough, I don't think, from that law-abiding, decent Muslim majority who want to live their lives very happily in our country. Do, do you think that's right? Well, I, I think, Alison, if I just look at the case of Salman Abedi, the um, Manchesterina bomber, he was reported to the authorities by local Muslims. Uh, he was also banned from a local mosque because of his radical views on Islamic State. So I, I think that this idea that British Muslims are moderate, law-abiding British Muslims are not playing their part in broader counter-terrorism efforts, I think that is wide off the mark. I, I think actually what, what the main issue is is that you have the metropolitan liberal mainstream, which refuses to provide those moderate Muslim voices with the weight that they deserve. Yes. Something that struck me, it's been reported, as you said, that the vast majority of the 43,000 people on MI5's terror watch list are jihadists. About 39,000 of them are jihadists, compared to a few thousand far-right extremists. But you've pointed out, Rakib, that the Prevent Counter-Extremism Programme is designed to nip potential extremism in the bud. But between April 2019 and March 2020, fewer than one in four cases referred to Prevent, that's about 24%, fell into the category of Islamist radicalisation, while 22% were classified as far-right radicalisation. I mean, surely most British people would find it utterly bizarre that far-right cases are on a par with Islamist cases when it comes to referrals to prevent? Well, I, I think that there's a fundamental mismatch between the ideological composition of cases which are handled within our counterterrorism structures and the ideological composition of the overall national terror threat. I do think that there are ideological biases at play within that broader counterterrorism structure, because you see there, in terms of cases referred to prevent, recent figures show that uh, around one in four cases fall in the Islamist extremism category. Uh, that, that's, that's not matched to the ideological composition of the national terror threat. Now, the far-right terror threat in the UK is a rapidly growing one, but people confuse rapidly growing with being the main one. Uh, this is basic mental arithmetic, really, that something can be rapidly growing, but can still be a relatively small threat compared to the prevailing threat, which in in our country is Islamist extremism. I, I, I think it's a possibility that there's certain organisations involved in referring cases to prevent who are reluctant, or rather they may be more enthusiastic to refer a potential case of far-right radicalization. But when it comes to Islamist radicalization, perhaps for fear of appearing racist or anti-Muslim, they may be more reluctant to refer a potential case of Islamist radicalization. And I think that's a very serious problem because if our counter-extremism and counter-terrorism efforts are plagued by the forces of tribal identity politics and political correctness, then that in itself is a national security threat. Yes, it certainly is. You wrote rather brilliantly, being anxious over the country's most significant terror threat is not a form of anti-Muslim prejudice. Is Do you worry sometimes that there's a danger that the action of perhaps 39,000 murderous individuals who hate our way of life might rebound on millions of law-abiding Muslims. Well, I, I think that the the actions of a tiny minority, it can make life very difficult for a law-abiding majority. When we're looking at the broader dynamics within the British Muslim population, you'll actually see that you know, levels of uh, British patriotism, trust in public institutions, satisfaction with democracy, they're relatively high within British Muslim communities uh, and, and trust in the police as well. But what you have, you have this almost like, a, it's, it's, it's almost like a grievance industrial complex where you have organisations 
individuals, including individuals in uh, British politics, that, that they peddled this narrative of Britain being a fundamentally anti-Muslim country. But that doesn't hold up at all. There's a recent survey data showed that three in four British Muslims believe that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. Um, and the main reason they provided was the freedom to practice their own religion. So you could see there that the, the, the mainstream British Muslims, they're very poorly represented by a number of British Muslim politicians and a number of British Muslim organisations which are far from being representative. No. Rakeem, I'm sure Planet Normal listeners will want to hear about your personal story. You grew up in Luton. Your family is of Bangladeshi and Indian origin. You went to a local high school followed by Luton Sixth Form College where you clearly did incredibly well going on to take a first in politics and international relations at London University. I wonder what was your experience like growing up? Did did you encounter racism and did you feel a full a full part of British society or did you experience segregation? Well, I, th- I, th- I think looking at my upbringing, I, I, I was uh, raised in a multi-ethnic, religiously diverse neighbourhood. Uh, and, and I felt that on the whole, uh, Luton, for all its troubles, and Luton has had its fair share of problems when it comes to Islamist extremism. It was also the birthplace of the English Defence League. Yes, was it? Oh, but right. Okay. It, 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 it was indeed. But I'd say overall, in terms of my experience of growing up in Luton and still living in Luton, it ultimately comes down to your attitude, but it also comes down to your family culture as well. And, uh, and being raised in a family unit, which, in, which encouraged me to treat people with fairness, irrespective of their background, I think that really put me in good stead in terms of thriving in our multiracial democracy. Does it worry you that there are some cities in, in this country where a young Muslim child might not be coming into contact with children from other walks of life? I mean, is there a danger of segregation and that we're sleepwalking into segregation? I, I, I think that social segregation, particularly in certain inner city neighbourhoods, I think is a very serious problem. Because under those conditions of segregation, quite often social segregation um, is tied with uh, intense forms of material deprivation as well. Those young people living in those segregated communities, they don't have an opportunity to develop those positive relations with those of a different ethnic, racial or religious background. And under those conditions, uh, suspicion of the unknown can develop. And that's hugely problematic when it comes to maintaining a healthy level of social cohesion in a multiracial, religiously diverse democracy such as ours. And I'm firmly of the view that our political classes, they've adopted this very relaxed approach when it comes to multiculturalism, championing difference between different groups. But what they fail to do is establish a common moral cultural standard to help tie those different ethnic, racial and religious groups together. Yes. Coming back to some of these young, radicalised young Muslim men in their bedrooms, you know, a lot of them become radicalised over lockdown. What hole in themselves is this pernicious, you know, Islamist propaganda against the country they were born in? What need is that fulfilling in them, do you think? I think the online radicalisation it was always going to be a problem under the lockdowns associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and, and it is possible that that's led to a shift in the nature of our terror threat, where you could see low-tech, lone wolf terror attacks by individuals who, who were essentially uh, trapped in these online hubs of uh, the, the, these loosely organised digital extremist communities. I definitely feel that various forms of online radicalization may have accelerated under the pandemic. And as we're opening up you know, our post-COVID society, you could say we're not quite there yet. But it's not an exaggeration to say that we're living in a very different society now. And that includes the nature um, and the scale of the terror threat in modern day Britain. With Christmas approaching, do you worry that there's a possibility of more copycat attacks? Will individuals, disturbed individuals who are carrying terror-related aspirations, 
do they see sort of festive Christmas gatherings as target rich venues? Uh, that, that's something that the security services have already uh, mentioned. Uh, they've asked the public to be vigilant. But I, I think that the, the, the real issue here is that there's, there's real mixed messaging. So, for example, it's been discussed a great deal that the individual behind the Liverpool uh, bomb blast was a Christian convert. That's been talked about a great deal. And then it's also been said that it's a possibility that he intended to target Remembrance Day events at the cathedral. And then we're also told that people at festive Christmas gatherings really have to be vigilant over the terror threat. So I think I don't think that mixed messaging is particularly helpful at all. Finally, on the planet Normal Rocket, we have extraterrestrial powers to grant our guests a wish <laughs> if Dr. Rakib Essan was given free reign to combat radicalization amongst young Muslims and to improve social cohesion in this lovely country of ours, what would he recommend? I think that the one thing that I would really like to see is moderate patriotic British Muslims being given more airtime. And, and I'm very thankful that you've given me a platform to, uh, to, 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 to flesh out my thoughts. <laughs> but I do feel that even a mainstream public broadcasters such as the BBC, they have a real tendency to platform poisonous, toxic voices. I mean, how many times did Anjum Chowdhury feature on the BBC? Oh, my, my, that's my bet noir, I tell you. Oh, Yeah, a, fa- a fair bit. So I think I've had that one wish is... Um, for patriotic, moderate, inclusive-minded British Muslims to be given more time to express their views and thoughts within the British media. Well, Rakib, it's Liam and I who are grateful to you for bringing that moderate, generous, insightful voice, superb insights into the present situation, into the rocket of right thinking. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. He's an impressive guy, Alison, and all the more impressive for being representative of the vast majority of the Muslim people living in our country, whether they were born here and raised here or if they came here as first-generation immigrants. In my view, they make a huge contribution to British society. People like Rakim Hassan do need a bigger platform to speak out. It seems that as journalists, we always seem to reach for the more extreme elements, in order to spread alarmism. But it's it's not fair on moderate British Muslims. You know, Liam, I kept feeling like cheering <laughs> or clapping when he was speaking to me. And what a lovely and thoughtful and clearly highly intelligent guy from a very normal Muslim household in Luton. And what struck me really, you know, that great phrase he had, the bigotry of low expectations. I mean, how dare a sort of metropolitan liberal elite with, as Rakib said, their ideological biases. How dare they presume to know what these people think and they must be protected from certain kind of discussions and discussions which would be, you know, a breath of fresh air for most people. And as you say, I think people like Rakib, we need to hear from more of them. I mean, you you know, you mentioned my, that guy I absolutely cannot stand, and Jim Chowdhury, who going around polluting young Muslims, turning them against the country in which they live. And, you know, that kind of person being given a lot of airtime and what Rakib talked about, the the grievance industrial complex, peddling the narrative of Britain being an anti-Muslim country, which these people, a lot of people on the Labour benches, they think that they're doing a big favour to Muslims by peddling these grievances. In, in fact, they're causing division and alienation, I would suggest. And Dr. Ricky Besson has written a book called Beyond Grievance, The Modern Left and Britain's Ethnic Minorities. It's available to pre-order on Amazon. I highly recommend that Planet Normal listeners check it out. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co. UK. Please keep them coming. We learn an enormous amount from your messages and we often go on to debate them, Liam and I, in the podcast. This week we've heard, Liam, from a lot of parents who are really concerned that while adults are enjoying the full freedoms as lockdown restrictions have been lifted, 
children in schools are back into really quite worrying restrictions. And this is from Fiona, not her real name. Like many of your listeners, Fiona says, I feel you have helped to keep my husband and me sane. Well, relatively so. During the crazy roller coaster ride we've all experienced over the past 18 months, my daughter suffered terribly during the lockdowns and school closures. The impact on children with no siblings being left isolated and alone for months with no playmates was cruel and entirely unnecessary. However, I thought we were lucky as she was primary school age and so did not have to suffer the additional cruelty of months of mask wearing in school for no good reason. Unfortunately, our daughter entered year seven in September. To date, her new school had seemed to be sensible and pragmatic in its approach to COVID measures. Sadly, it has now decided to reintroduce mask wearing to keep the children and staff safe. I have yet to find any evidence as to why wearing a piece of cloth with gaps at the side all day long is, quotes, keeping my daughter safe. Furthermore, this decision was taken after the COVID vaccine had been given to all children at her school who wanted it. However, I knew the day would come when the school would bring masks back in. Whilst I am saddened that my daughter is now forced to suffer bad skin, poor concentration and a diminished academic experience for the foreseeable future, what filled me with dread when I received the email from the school was the following sentence. Those pupils who were exempt from wearing a mask last academic year will once again be exempt and should wear a yellow badge to indicate this. Well, I have heard comparisons a number of times with the dangers of implementing vaccine passports mirroring Nazi Germany's treatment of their Jewish population. But it had never occurred to me that a school would be first in line to adopt the Nazis' yellow badge, which was used to single people out. Keep up the good work on Planet Normal. I'm appalled to hear that, Fiona. You know, making children wear yellow badges, Liam, can you imagine? Absolutely horrendous. This is from Steve. Dear Alison and Liam, so the great Glasgow Gabfest, I guess he means COP26, has (laughs) finally come to an end and we can all heave a sigh of relief. The great and the good and the sanctimonious have boarded their private jets and spewed thousands of tonnes more carbon into the atmosphere as they return home. And for what? A great deal of hot air, says Steve, and a few empty promises on unachievable targets. My overriding impression was not how committed or serious they were, but how ineffectual. Most depressing is how insulated from reality they all are. From the reality of the scale of the engineering required to achieve even some of their goals, and from the reality of the problems the rest of us have to face each day, like paying our bills. What we need is a calm, rational and above all well-informed discussion about how to go about powering our future, how much it will cost and how we're going to pay for it. What we got instead was hysterical prognostications, recrimination and a stream of eco-propaganda from a self-righteous band of ignorant, ill-informed fanatics. Congratulations to Liam. Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) For being the first journalist I've come across, says Steve, to realise, or at least state in public, electric vehicles are not eco-friendly or pollution-free. They're anything but. It's simply that their carbon footprint plus other pollution is created elsewhere, and they will eventually leave us with the problem of toxic waste disposal. Pursuing electric vehicles to the exclusion of everything else is like riding a white elephant down a blind alley. Keep up your sterling work, (laughs) co-pilot, says Steve. And there's a PS. Just to show that even the most rational amongst us can sometimes let our hearts rule our heads, Steve discloses. I must say I find Alison's voice simply wonderful. The way she says hello at the start of every podcast. It's enough to make a bishop kick in a stained glass window. And yet in those seductively mellifluous tones, she speaks oceans of good-humoured common sense in a world that grows ever more stridently insane. Steve, you don't really know her. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. It's really good to know that there are some men close to this podcast who appreciate what co-pilot Pearson has to put up with. Hello. Hello. I'm the poor man's Joanna Lumley Halligan. You're the thinking man's Rennie Selviger. (laughs) You know that great phrase is from uh, Raymond Chandler. Uh, Was it a girl with a smile? Did Alison mention she read English at Cambridge? (laughs) Raymond 
Chandler isn't isn't Dryden, you know, Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. I think it was a smile that can make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. Well, get on with the emails. I'm getting on with the emails. So continuing the spate of emails about the state of the National Health Service. This is from Mike. A Telegraph headline said over 11,000 people had caught COVID in hospital and died. This will be no surprise to you, Liam and Alison, as many months ago you questioned whether the infection control measures in hospital were fit for purpose. I have visited a couple of hospitals recently and noticed that all the staff are diligent in wearing standard issue masks. But in the Telegraph, Dr Colin Axe, an advisor to the government, explained that the holes in surgical masks are a thousand times larger than the COVID virus aerosol, so they are no more protective than a comfort blanket. So hospital staff may look the part, but are they actually acting the part or is it all showmanship? Planet Normal is doing a great job trying to get science and common sense into people's thinking, but it really is an uphill struggle. Don't give up. We won't, Mike. Here's one from Clowder. What a lovely Irish name that is. Firstly, many congratulations, Alison, on your award. Oh, she didn't mention it. Announced on Planet Normal for the fifth time. That life-enhancing podcast that it is. Very well deserved. The Wallace and Gromit Cheese Award. For fine writing. Have you finished? Pipe down. Crikey. I felt I had to write to say how I so agree with you about the boomer generation fighting back against woke institutions. We too have cancelled our National Trust membership, among others. My husband has also removed a bequest from his will to his alma mater, Nottingham University, and I will be doing the same with mine, King's College London. I can't understand why these universities are so supine and have no backbone when it comes to the woke demands of their students, here today, gone tomorrow, to be replaced by the next ideology. I think the most disturbing thing is that this has all happened under a conservative government, but when you have the woke version of Marie Antoinette, brackets, Carrie, controlling our Prime Minister brackets in every department, exclamation mark, and dictating the agenda, what can one expect? Quite so. I must say, Halligan, that we have had quite a lot of emails this week about people disagreeing with you about mandating vaccines for care homes, but we will return to that can of worms another week. And this is from Andrew, not his real name. Finally, someone with some common sense has stated the bleeding obvious. It is not right to judge historical figures by the standards of today. And I can illustrate this with a simple real life example. Number one, having made a donation recently to Keeble College, Oxford, in response to an appeal from the Talbot Fund. Talbot was the first warden of Keeble College. As often happens, the college came back to me for more, asking for consideration of future donations or bequests. Two, I responded asking if any Keeble fellows were involved in the boycott of Oriel College students because of that college's refusal to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes. They responded that three of Keeble's teaching staff were involved. Three, I then asked if the college was aware that Talbot's grandfather, Charles Chetwin Talbot, was a slave owner. And one, ah. of those, ah, and one of those compensated handsomely by the British government for the emancipation of their slaves. I didn't get a reply this time. That's funny, Andrew. Four, the cost to the government of compensating owners of slaves was so vast that it was forced to take out a huge loan arranged by the financiers Nathan Rothschild and his brother-in-law Moses Montefiore. The loan was only finally acquitted in 2015. The potential list of the guilty is impressive and would make a wonderful version of Cluedo for all those nauseating, self-righteous, woke busybodies. Let me have a go. Talbot, guilty of being grandson of a slave owner. Keeble College, guilty of tolerating the boycott of Oriel students by their staff and generally being spineless. Cecil Rhodes, guilty of causing the problem in the first place. Her Majesty's government, guilty of paying out slavers with taxpayers' dosh until 2015. While you are about it, Planet Normal, can you please broadcast that I am happy to be cancelled in my grumpy retirement so I can spend my time picking apart the morons that are determined to poison our history. Love your planet. Beam me up. Wow. What a fantastic email. What a fantastic email. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's my turn to pick. It is. You know what? It's got to be Steve. (laughs) It's got to be Steve. 
Not least because of what he says about your voice. How can a man be so deranged? <laughs> I can only hope that the planet Normal Mug helps him to see reason. I think Steve may have replaced Monsieur Macron in my uh, pantheon <laughs> of, of boyfriends. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and why not, do leave us a rating and a review, please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does help other people to find us and it reassures Halligan and myself that we're doing okay. Every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I'll reply between 11am and noon. Please do join in. We learn so much from you and love to be in touch. And do keep those emails coming. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers louisa wells isabel bouchard elliot lampitt and our editor theodora leludis stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him <laughs>